Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Aron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking monitoring biofeedback. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 88 of the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast. Today, we're going to talk all about biofeedback, what it is, and what to pay attention to when you are making changes to your nutrition and your fitness plan, and how to tackle some of these uh, changes that may be going on physiologically as you are going through your program. So, Nicole, I think the first thing to look at is always obviously lab values, looking at your thyroid panel, making sure that your T3 and T4 are in good range, looking at your sex hormones, like your testosterone and estrogen. And for women, I think you look at progesterone too, mm-hmm. and looking at your blood glucose, fasting blood glucose, and then also looking at your A1C, which is more of a long-term snapshot that's really uh instead of doing fasting blood glucose and saying okay well what do you what is your blood sugar look like right now a1c will be looking at what does your blood sugar look like over a period of time and how does that accumulate on your red blood cells that'll really tell you like long-term changes in blood glucose and that's really the marker that you'll want to use to see if you're having blood glucose issues and also Looking at cholesterol, HDL, LDL, VLDL, what are the ratios? Is your HDL too low? Is your LDL too high? Is your total cholesterol too high? Uh, Nicole, you know that I'm a fan of particle testing and looking at different size of particles because not all LDL is created equal and not all HDL is created equal. So if you have access to that or you have a physician that does that or maybe a cardiologist, that would be a good idea too. And then looking at your liver enzymes and just really making sure that your liver is good to go because. I mean, if you really kind of think about it, your liver is responsible for almost all of metabolism It metabolizes everything. Everything that you eat goes through your liver, gets broken down, turned into other things. Some sugars get turned into fat. Some fats get turned into sugar. Like there's so many things going on uh, in your liver and you want to make sure that your diet and your exercise program is just supporting overall health and looking at that in your lab values. But Outside of your lab values, some of the things that we look at are subjective biofeedback markers. Some of these markers are going to be your sleep, your mood, your hunger, your energy, your cravings, your digestion, your exercise performance. And I think sex drive is one of them too. So Nicole, I think one of the first things we want to talk about, and, and this is something that oftentimes we'll do for ourselves as well as for many of the clients that we work with, mm-hmm. will always go to biofeedback. And I think that this is a miss for a lot of coaches. It's just, hey, eat this, eat that. Like, it doesn't matter what you feel like as long as you're getting results. But the results are also biofeedback based as well. Yeah. And you have to feel good throughout the process and you have to really be in tune with your body throughout the process to see if things are working for you. And one of the things I always say, and this is oftentimes people will just say, okay, well, weight is the only thing that I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. And we like to look at other things. We look at weight, we look at body fat, we do progress pictures, we do measurements. 
And we also do biofeedback because that tells us, okay, well, if things aren't moving, the dial's not moving on your weight or your body fat or any of those things that I just mentioned right now, what is moving or what is preventing the dial from moving? Well, I also would add to that too, though, like from a sustainable and unsustainable range, like you can lose weight that's unsustainable or you can lose weight that's sustainable. And the biofeedbacks help us to keep people creating change in a sustainable way so that we know that they can do it for a long term and that they can keep it off. I just add that too. Yeah. And also, Nicole, this biofeedback is telling you something. It's telling you something about the strategy that you're doing. Exactly. And whether or not it's effective for you. Yeah. Okay. So, sleep. So starting with sleep, I guess there are three questions that we ask, Nicole. How many hours of sleep do you get each night on average? Is that interrupted or uninterrupted? Are you waking up at night or are you sleeping through the night? And then how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? Mm-hmm. And these are three things that we look at. And in some instances, and I don't know, I don't know if I want to say rare cases, but there are some instances where, you know, people will say, well, I have a baby that wakes up in the middle of the night and, you know, that obviously we can't do anything about. But if your sleep is interrupted, there are things that you can do. Or if you're having trouble falling asleep, there are things that you can do. And oftentimes what I see is when people are under high stress, mm-hmm. their cortisol levels seem to almost kind of flip and be backwards. Yeah. Where you and we've we've all kind of gone through this. And from time to time, we probably will go through this. And there are ways that we can address this. And there are a couple of things when it comes to sleep. And one of them is that your cortisol and melatonin are kind of flipped or your cortisol is flipped, right? So ideally, your cortisol is supposed to be elevated in the morning and not in the evening. But some people will describe themselves as this kind of tired and wired, like I'm so tired in the evening, Mm -hmm. but I'm wired and I can't fall asleep. Mm -hmm. Those are instances where your circadian rhythm might be flipped. There's kind of precursors to that type of drastic flip, which I think is what we try and use these biofeedbacks to figure out before you even get to a point where your circadian rhythms are totally off and you're experiencing some of these like backwards um, or these out of balance hormones. And that is, I mean, I always add what's what's your normal sleep cycle like when you have good sleep, what's normal for you? And when you have you ever noticed that when you're stressed, your sleep is thrown off because people do know their bodies to some extent. Like if you have a woman that had a baby, she'll tell you exactly when her sleep cycle was off and what her cravings were like. And if her energy was off, if she's up a couple of times a night versus, you know, someone that maybe doesn't have a baby and is just stressed at work and what that type of disruption is like. So trying to dig deeper into what the disruption looks like for that particular individual and then this is why we talk about it so much in session is figuring out strategies to try and kind of get ahead of the train going all the way to the point where you're waking up in the morning and you're sluggish and tired and your cortisol is off. We want to try and get to a place where that doesn't happen. And then if it does happen, what are the things that we're going to do to try and rectify it? Yeah. So kind of putting cortisol into perspective here, cortisol is a fight or flight hormone Mm -hmm. and it is met in the morning to essentially what happens is in the morning, typically your cortisol will be very high and then it'll start to taper off towards the end of the day. And And then you'll be slowly throughout the day. Yes. And then you'll be tired. And, you know, at the end of the night, you'll unwind and then you'll ideally, although we don't really have that today because we have so much exposure to light. This Mm -hmm. is where things like blue light glasses come in. 
ideally you'll start producing melatonin in the evening when the sun goes down and the light goes, the lights go out. Right. And then you'll be calm and you'll go to sleep. So there are a couple of ways that you can address this. And there's also, there are also things like dopamine and norepinephrine that can be elevated in the evening as well. And that, that is something where, you know, typically I'll recommend a supplement like catecholicon. Like if you are that person that, you know, your mind is racing at night, you can't turn your brain off. Maybe catecholamines are something that you need to reduce, which would be things like dopamine and norepinephrine. In terms of cortisol, an easy fix for that. And now we're talking kind of temporary fixes. We're talking putting a band aid on that. And in a moment, we'll talk about sleep, sleep hygiene. Mm -hmm. But an easy fix for cortisol is something like ashwagandha. Mm -hmm. And ashwagandha is in catecholicom, um, but ashwagandha in some studies has shown uh, to have as much as a 30% reduction in cortisol. So taking something like ashwagandha before you go to bed will reduce cortisol and then flip that back for you over a period of time. If you take that supplement, you know, even for a week, I find that there's, there's uh, some pretty drastic differences when taking that kind of a supplement or taking adap adaptogens. Uh, melatonin is something that you can use as a temporary sleep aid. But what I'll say is you really need to block exposure to light when you go to bed. So if you are somebody that is in front of the TV, watching TV, or if you have a TV in the bedroom, like TV in the bedroom yeah. is a big no, no for me. Yeah. And, um, you know, you want to, you want to turn off that TV. You'll want to shut your computer about an hour, yeah. two hours before phone. you go to, you go to bed. You don't want to look at your phone before you go to bed. And I know these are difficult things to do. We're all scrolling on Instagram or Facebook or, yeah. I don't really Emails. know any, anybody scrolling on Facebook nowadays. It's kind of like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's like Facebook is like the older generation. I feel like. Yeah. Well, you want to sleep if you're natural, if your cortisol naturally slows down throughout the day and it's like you said, supposed to slowly create this unwinding experience as you get to the later night hours so that you can get into bed and fall to sleep, you know, gently. If you're utilizing things that are constantly keeping that, you know, elevated, you're going to have a hard time falling asleep or you'll fall asleep and wake up halfway through the night. The other piece is exercise. Just expending energy throughout the day is going to help yeah. you to fall asleep at night. So it, it's going to take some work. Um, there's definitely going to be some sleep hygiene. You may want to do some meditation to help calm and relax mm -hmm. your brain in the evening and reduce cortisol because that does help. But you'll, you know, you'll want to take those steps towards maybe you'll want to do some supplementation. Maybe you'll want to do some ashwagandha, maybe some uh, valerian root to calm you down and, and help you to fall asleep. And what I'll also say is uh, typically speaking from a biofeedback standpoint, if you're waking up at night, one of the number one things that helps with that is magnesium. Oftentimes people are deficient in magnesium and taking a magnesium glycinate supplement is something that will help you to stay asleep because it helps to regulate your sleep wake cycle. Mm -hmm. So this is where we look at it from a few different standpoints. How do you feel when you wake up in the morning? Are you tired and groggy in the morning? Okay. Your cortisol is probably low in the morning. Mm -hmm. Are you tired and wired in the evening? Your cortisol is probably high in the evening. So that's an indicator of your reversed circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. And are you waking up in the middle of the night? That could potentially be a magnesium deficiency for you. And that's an easy fix. 200 to 300 milligrams of magnesium glycinate before you go to bed. And that's something that's going to have to build up in your system. So you're going to have to give it a while and take it consistently. Yeah. Some real simple things to do, breathing exercise before you go to bed, warm tea, a hot shower, a hot bath, stretching, foam rolling, like ways to 
physically get your body to calm down. The other thing that I always talk about too, Daron, is changing your going to bedtime and your wake time. Like a lot of the times people are getting up at hours to, especially if they're getting up early to go to the gym or if they're getting up to, you know, get to work earlier on some days and other days, or they're going to bed later because they're maybe go to dinner at night and their, their bedtime and wake time is inconsistent. Um, I don't know if you talk about this, but I do all the time. I try and I'm like, maybe you need to go to bed an, a half hour earlier or go to bed a half hour later just to shift your wake sleep cycle a bit to see if that helps to change your rhythm because sometimes people fall asleep too early and then they can't stay asleep all night or sometimes they go to bed too late and then they can't fall asleep so sometimes it's really is just a timing adjustment too simple things but well the other piece nicole the other piece nicole that you just reminded me of is consistency in your sleep schedule and going to bed at the same time every night exactly but i mean i've had situations where if you're getting up super duper early one day a week and that throws you off. Sometimes that can make waking up later in the morning harder and vice versa. So that consistency consistency aspect, I think, is something to also like a toggle to play with, too. All right. On to the next one. The next one we have here is mood. So there could be a few things going on here with mood. And uh, the first thing I'm going to go with is the little bit more complex aspect is balancing your gut bacteria is super important just for multiple aspects of health. But in terms of your mood as well, balancing your gut bacteria is helpful in stabilizing your mood due to the signals sent from your gut to your brain via the vagus nerve. Now, the way that this works is you have some bacteria that produces neurotransmitters such as serotonin and dopamine and GABA, which is gamma amino butyric acid all of which play a role in your mood. Like if you look at a lot of antidepressants, they increase levels of the same compounds. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, I've seen, I don't know exactly how much dopamine or serotonin is produced in the gut. I've seen various different numbers. I've seen like 50%, 90%, 70%. I don't know exactly how much is produced, but a large amount of your dopamine is produced in your gut. And that has to do with the balance of your bacteria. Now, you don't necessarily need to do a stool test to do this. You just need to eat a healthy, balanced diet that promotes development or colonization of good, good, healthy bacteria. And, you know, one of the one of the biggest things that have that's been found to help with um, just overall health and just everything in general, one of the best diets in the world is the Mediterranean diet which is very high in omega-3 fatty acids, fruits, vegetables, significant amounts of fiber, nuts, legumes, uh, but also limits refined starches and carbohydrates. So that's what you're looking for. Essentially, refined starches and carbohydrates will feed the bad guys in your gut. And the fibers really, particularly, and you look at things like inulin and butyrate production, which we've talked about before, um, that'll feed feed the good guys. And those good guys will promote positive neurotransmitters for your mood. Well, based off of the Mediterranean diet, the, the whole idea of good food, fruits, vegetables, starch, and adequate protein is balance. That's basically what it promotes. You're getting a lot more of the good fiber, a little bit of the starch, and your adequate amount of protein and good solid fats. We talk about that all the time in terms of creating balanced meals. And if you're adequately getting those balanced meals with all of those nutrients in each individual meal, 
then you're creating that balance in your gut without isolating and removing foods. You know, we talk about this all the time. If you're removing lots of things from your food plan and not adding things in to create balance, then that's when the gut microbiome gets off balance and that bacteria can get off balance. And then that's when we start to see signals and symptoms from our biofeedback in terms of mood and different levels of hunger and cravings that we're all going to get into. But that's part of the reason why it's so important to talk about it. Yeah. And Nicole, like you're alluding to with the balance of your diet, it's essentially you want to look at nutrient density and balancing that. Yeah. Right. Eating foods rich in folate, iron, uh, long chain omega-3 fatty acids like EPA and DHA, making sure that you're getting adequate fish. And if you're not, you're supplementing with a fish oil. Uh, Magnesium, which we talked about with sleep, really important for positive mood, really important for those neurotransmitters, potassium, selenium, thymine, vitamin A, B6, B12, vitamin C, right? They're all associated with a healthy mood. If you're in a calorie deficit, what I'll say is you might also want to consider a multivitamin because you want to cover all bases and you want to make sure that you're not deficient. And if you're eating less food, you're probably eating less nutrients, which is fine because you're trying to, you have a weight loss goal that you're trying to hit, but you want, you might want to get a good multivitamin to cover all bases. And one of the things I'll say about a multivitamin, and then I'll kind of just leave it there and move on is you want to, I always stress that you want to look out for a good quality multivitamin. If it has magnesium oxide in it, it's a cheaper form of magnesium. So look out for the form of magnesium. Maybe you'll want something with magnesium malate or magnesium glycinate. Um, You'll want something with folate, not folic acid. You'll want a multivitamin that has uh, B12 in the form of methylcobalamin, not cyanocobalamin. Again, cyanocobalamin is the cheap stuff. Uh, and the methylcobalamin for a lot of people is going to be more highly bioavailable. So just look out for brands that have that. Uh, and then the other thing, Nicole, from a mood standpoint is you could be getting hangry because of your caloric restriction. Mm -hmm. And one of two things can be happening. One, you could have just introduced the calorie deficit and you need to give yourself time to adjust. Exactly. Give your hunger cues time to adjust or two. You may be in too extreme a calorie deficit. Yeah. And you're and you're just way too hungry. Yeah, it's not sustainable. You're too hungry and you aren't getting the adequate nutrition that you need for it to be something that you can do for a period of time. And we know that if you are in a severe deficit for a long period of time, severe we're talking, that can alter your your gut. So you want to be very careful how hard you go. Since we're on the topic of caloric restriction and hunger and hangry and being too hungry, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the next biofeedback is actually hunger. Yeah. So there are a couple of things that can happen with your hunger. And first and foremost, what I'll say is if you're in a calorie deficit and you're hungry, we, we want to look at how big of a deficit you're in. Right. And we talk about this all the time. We talk about your basal metabolic rate. We talk about not eating below your basal metabolic rate, eating below your total daily energy expenditure. So, you know, the typical 1200 calorie diet isn't going to do it for you that not everybody needs to eat 1200 calories. If you're a very small individual, maybe, but I don't know where this 1200 calorie thing came from that people just think, oh, well, if I want to lose weight, I got to eat 1200 calories or I got to just cut out my carbs. Mm-hmm. Looking at your hunger, there's a couple of things that can happen. You can be too hungry from too low of calories, but oftentimes what I also see is that hunger cues kind of dissipate as well. If you're in in too large of a calorie deficit, you could be not hungry at all. Yeah. And then that creates even more problems because 
then you don't eat and you create a bigger calorie deficit. So it's kind of that sweet spot. Like you don't want to, you want to give it enough time. You want to create the deficit to give it enough time to be slightly hungry for a short period of time. Your body adjusts. Then you're hungry for your meals, but you're not so hungry to your point that you're tipping over to being not hungry at all. There's kind of like that middle ground. Well, it'd be like the Goldilocks, like you always talk about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Listen, you want to have some level of hunger. If you're in a calorie deficit, the reality is you're going to be hungry. Yeah. But you don't want to be so hungry that you feel like, like, look at it on a scale of one to 10. And, and this is oftentimes the dialogue that I'll have is on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the most hungry. How hungry are you? Oh, well, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not really that hungry. I'm kind of, a, you know, like a three or four or five. Those are acceptable. But once you get into like seven, eight, nine yeah. or 10, then we really have to look at, okay, what strategy are we implementing? Where are your calories? And if your calories are fine, it could be a food choice thing. Well, that was my next thing too. So, and then the three things that we look at fiber, protein, and water. First and foremost, if you're doing a, uh, if you're in a calorie deficit, one of the most important things is to eat adequate protein Mm -hmm. for various different reasons. And one of the reasons because uh, protein is the most satiating macronutrient. And another reason is because muscle protein turnover is higher in a calorie deficit and you don't want to lose muscle because if Mm -hmm. you lose muscle in that deficit, you're also going to over time. Uh, reduce your resting metabolic rate or your basal metabolism. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you just want to preserve muscle. So you want to actually, typically, I'd, I'd recommend to eat more protein than you would if your goal was maintenance or uh, yeah. surplus or building muscle. The other thing is fiber, making sure you're getting adequate fiber. And the recommendation for fiber, the general recommendation is 25 grams a day for women, 35 grams a day for men. I like the recommendation of 14 grams for every thousand calories that you're eating, right? Because if you're somebody that eats more calories, you're going to, you're processing more food through the gut. You'll want to make sure that you're getting more fiber in to aid in kind of pushing that food through your Mm -hmm. system. Yeah. Anything else we want to talk about with hunger? Yeah. I want to add one other thing in terms of in between your meals. So if you're eating adequate meals in a calorie deficit and they're creating satiety from meal to meal, you shouldn't be hungry in between. So I think another biofeedback is if you eat a meal, even a good quality meal, and you're starving 20 minutes later, it doesn't carry you to your next meal. You're probably not eating enough calories. A good quality, fully satiated meal should keep you fed until you get to your next meal. You'll be hungry within what, 30, 45 minutes for that next meal, but you're not so hungry the entire time you're waiting that you're counting down the minutes to eat again. I don't think you'll be hungry. in I think you'll be hungry in a few hours. I mean, 30 to 45 minutes within that time before the next meal. So you, you should be able to go three, four hours between meals, but like three and a half hours into and your body that starts cueing you that it's time you should to be like, hey, it's time in about 30 minutes, that four hour mark, you should start to actually feel hungry for a meal. Does that make sense? Yes. And since you brought that up, what I'll also say when it comes to meal frequency, and I get this often is, oh, I'm not hungry in the morning or I'm not hungry for so many meals. I only eat twice a day. What you have to realize about hunger cues is that you dictate them. Your body doesn't. And your body creates hunger hormones based off of the cues that you create. So if you're not, if you're somebody who eats two meals a day and you need to, let's say, increase your caloric consumption, just start eating. Even if it's something small, even if it's like a handful of something, Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Right? Let's say you want to increase from eating twice a day to eating three times a day or even four times a day, but you're not hungry at those other intervals. You just eat something and yeah. give it about a week or two. And over a period of time, your body will start cueing that you're hungry at that time. So you are the one that dictates your hunger cues. And it goes the same way. Like if you overeat, your body's going to want to eat more and more right. food. Which so, is why you get hungry when you start to create a calorie deficit and you take snacks in between meals out, your body cues you that you've been eating those snacks in between meals. So that's why you feel hungry when you take them out. Yep. And the other thing, Nicole, is energy. And I think um, a lot of this has to do with blood glucose, blood sugar. And like you mentioned, balancing your meals yeah. is important for blood glucose fluctuations. And yeah. oftentimes you will see like, Hey, you have that like energy crash, but like you're at work, you're at your desk, you're falling asleep at your desk around two o'clock. Yep. That's not normal. You shouldn't feel that way. I'll say a couple of things. Uh, one consuming protein on a regular basis. And I always say, Hey, let's have a primary source of protein with every meal or even every snack that you have, uh, because that's going to help you to regulate blood glucose because that protein is going to be broken down a lot slower than a carbohydrate that you eat. So carbohydrates, they, they break down, they digest very quickly. You have a rapid spike in blood glucose. If you add a protein and fiber to that, then you're going to see delayed gastric emptying and you're going to have a slow release of glucose into your bloodstream. You're going to have steady energy throughout the day. The mm -hmm. other piece with energy, and this also has to do with uh, blood sugar and looking at A1C and looking at um, fasting blood glucose levels, you're going to have better outcomes with your blood glucose levels when you're having consistent carbohydrates at multiple times throughout the day yes. versus if you have one meal that's very high in carbohydrates and mm -hmm. then you have, let's say, no carbohydrates later on, you have yeah. better outcomes if you're spreading your carbs out throughout the day evenly within your meals. Mm -hmm. And that's going to affect your energy. Now, energy can also be tied to your sleep and your sleep quality. So going back mm -hmm. to the sleep piece, you also want to make sure, you know, we kind of look at this as a multifaceted approach. Energy yeah. doesn't just have to come from your food. It can also come from your activity. It can come from, you know, maybe you're overtraining. We have to look at your workouts. There are two, multiple different aspects that we have to look at from an energy standpoint. We have to kind of pinpoint, okay, what do we need to change? What do we need to alter to make sure that you have good energy? Yeah, it's they're all intertwined because if you don't sleep well, your choices for food are much harder the next day. You know, you have cravings for things that maybe you wouldn't crave if you weren't tired. And so the whole idea of creating balance, which I use this term so much that, I don't know, sometimes I think it gets lost. But the idea is that if you're getting adequate sleep, if you have one of the biofeedbacks that is slightly off, then you're you're okay. You can feel tired one day here and there and it not really, you know, pull or tug on the other aspects of your your nutrition or exercise or, or mood or, you know, hunger, energy, cravings, anything. But if you have more than three of more than one of those and three being you don't sleep, you're not eating enough good quality, nutrient dense meals and you're over exercising. It makes sense that trying to live in a calorie deficit might be really miserable and unsustainable. You know what I'm saying? So the idea for our listeners is that you want to make sure that while everyone has ups and downs in their biofeedbacks, like there are times where you're not going to get sleep. There are times where you might may not have a perfect day of eating. There are times where you don't have every meal balanced. That's going to happen. But if all of them are collectively happening at the same time on a regular basis, 
you're going to hit some walls in terms of creating the progress or the results that you're looking to achieve. You mentioned cravings. I did. Yes. Cravings are different than hunger. And I think people don't realize that. Do you want to talk a little bit about cravings? Because that's the next one we got here. Okay. Well, I mean, ideally, cravings are going to be something that you seek out even when you're not hungry. You know, if you're actually hungry, you know, they always say, I've heard this many times, if you're actually hungry, then go grab an apple and peanut butter and have that. But if you're craving chocolate, an apple and peanut butter isn't really going to be the thing that you want to go for. But if you're actually really hungry for something, the, the apple and peanut butter will be something that is satisfying and feels good and you won't be hungry anymore. But if you're craving chocolate and you, you have an apple and peanut butter, you're not going to be satisfied. That's different than hunger. You want the chocolate. And that type of craving has a different message from our body or our brain. So what is our body telling us when we're craving something? Uh, well, I always talk about lack of nutrient deficiencies is one aspect. I always feel like if people aren't getting adequate amount of protein, they tend to crave things that will fulfill or make them feel that energy kind of sweep up. So a lot of the time, sugar is a big one if for lack of protein. What does the, the taste? Uh... Yeah, like taste, texture, you know, smooth, like cravings have different aspects to crunchy. Uh, crunchy. <laughs> yeah. So people crave are, crunchy though. No, seriously. Well, this is what I mean by craving, like craving crunchy. Isn't that you're hungry. It's that you want something to, you know, craving can be a, a, a physiological craving, like lack of protein. So you're craving sugar to give you that kind of boost of energy, or you're craving, you know, caffeine to give you that boost of energy, but it also can be, um, uh, emotional. Like if you're craving chocolate because you're stressed, you're worried, you're sad, like all the different emotions that happen. That has nothing to do with you actually being hungry. It's a fulfillment. Stress can influence your your craving. So you kind of want to look at, all right, like addressing the problem. And this is where food journals come in. Because if you're craving something and you eat it and you put it in your food journal, and then you can also keep a, I guess, like a, a emotional, a psychological journal and say, okay, well, how are you feeling? And what, like, what led you to make that decision? you can pinpoint the stress. And oftentimes with cravings, it's you have to, you don't necessarily address the food itself. You address what's causing you to eat that food. I mean, I have a piece of chocolate every night after dinner because I know that if I don't have it, I love chocolate and I, tr- I do crave it. So I think cr- addressing cravings, it can be very different for the individual. If I have the piece of chocolate, maybe two, three nights a week, then I don't have any cravings for it in, you know, more times than I would count. But if I don't and I deprive myself and I don't have it, I crave it not just every night, but then I crave more of it because I feel like I'm depriving myself. So it really depends on what the root cause of the craving is. You know, what's interesting, actually, and I had looked into this to see if there was uh, research supporting it. Cortisol and salt cravings. That was a thing that yeah. I that I heard about, but I there, it was tested in a lab and I there was no correlation was found with mm-hmm. having high cortisol or high stress and the like specifically craving. and specifically salt cravings. Yeah, see, I don't listen. I don't believe that cravings are more physiological than they are psychological. That's just how, just based off of what I've done with all my years of coaching, 
I do find that craving something is more a psychological response to emotions. That's just my opinion. There's yeah, I'd say I probably no real that. facts or, yeah. you know, to support that. I've never dove into the research or anything like that crazy, but just based on working with, you know, enough clients and coaching for years, a lot of cravings come from missing elements in your primary foods. I mean, listen, I remember competing in bodybuilding. And if I had a crazy stressful day, say I got in a fight with my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I'm going to eat cookies and I'm getting <laughs> off and I'm getting off my plan because I'm so stressed out. I'm stressed to begin with because I'm prepping for a show and I'm in a yes. large calorie deficit. But then it's the added stress. So it kind of gets into that stress cup thought. Yes, where- but you use the word stress. And I think emotional stress where you're in a deficit, that's physiological stress, right? So like I'm in a deficit, but the emotional stress added to the physiological stress, right? Was just too much stress for me to bear. You got it. That's the stress cup you were heading. I'm agreeing I got you. with you. I know. I know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> know. Let's move on to the next one. The next one is digestion. And I don't know really how much I, I have to say about this. A lot of people, I think, get too little fiber. Nicole, you and I talked offline mm-hmm. about this. And stool frequency is one of the biggest things with digestion. Yeah. If you're not going every day, that's yeah. biofeedback. That's telling us that, listen, people in severe calorie deficits tend to poop less. Yeah. Um, so that's part of it, too. But also looking at your fiber intake, it actually could be both sides. Mm-hmm. It can be too much or too little fiber. So that's something that we'd want to look at from a digestion standpoint. Um, The other thing from a digestion standpoint is we'd want to look at food intolerances Mm -hmm. and we'd want to look at food sensitivities, Mm -hmm. which, you know, sensitivity testing is kind of I I always kind of like I'm like, it's one of those things where I'm like, ah, miss me with that shit, because it's not (laughs) the best way to find if you have some kind of food sensitivity or intolerance is just to eliminate some foods and then reintroduce them and see how you're feeling. The food sensitivity test testing your IgG or IgE, um, looking at immunoglobulin markers, they're not really accurate. So, you know, the best the gold standard is still, it's not a testing method. It's a practice method where right. you're doing an elimination diet. Uh, and yeah. oftentimes digestion presents itself or gut issues present themselves somewhere else in a inflammatory sense. And you can have skin issues, acne, eczema, those can be associated with certain foods that you're eating. So when you're looking at digestion or you're looking at gut health, the biofeedback, it doesn't necessarily have to present like if you're lactose intolerant, yeah, you'll know like it. For me, for example, um, peanuts or lactose, they present in my nasal cavity because I have inflammation there, right? I get a stuffy nose when I eat certain foods. So that's something that you'll want to look at from a digestion standpoint, from a biofeedback uh, standpoint. Just keep in mind that it, it may start at the gut and you may not feel it in the gut and it may present somewhere else. Mm-hmm. The other piece that we'll look at is exercise performance as great biofeedback. Are you getting stronger when you're doing a resistance training program? Yeah. Are you getting significantly weaker when you're in a deficit? That might cue you into maybe your protein is off or maybe you're in too big of a deficit. And I've fallen victim to this too, where I was training for bodybuilding shows and I created for myself too big of deficits and I significantly lost strength. You potentially lose some strength 
when you're in a calorie deficit, but it shouldn't be like a complete tank in your energy, tank in your strength. Um, and, and you should be somewhat okay. You should be able to preserve as much lean mass as you can, and you should be able to preserve your strength. Right. Well, that's why I like using exercise performance as um, a biofeedback for calorie deficits, because if you are going to extreme and you're tanking in your energy, you're now putting yourself at risk for injury, lots of other issues. So if you're someone that is, this is also versus sustainable versus unsustainable. If you are trying to do it too fast and it's not sustainable, not only will you tank in your energy and not feel good getting your workouts in, but they start to fall off because you can't keep up. But if you are creating a calorie deficit that's sustainable, you still can go in, push your weights, get some good lifts in. You may not lift as heavy as you did when you were in a maintenance or surplus, but you still can perform your exercises. And, you know, I, I see that across the board with people that I work with. So it's not like you have to, because I think a lot of people think that when you're in a calorie deficit, you're supposed to like take your workouts down or not lift as heavy, like kind of like cut back on things. And I never have anyone do that. You push just as hard. If you're only in enough of a deficit where you can keep pushing, it, it shouldn't be that big of a, a difference. Yeah. I mean, listen, you're talking a deficit of like two to 500 calories, which shouldn't make that significant of a difference. Yeah. 500 maybe, but on the 200, 300 end, like you're not, it's not going to be. But even then, if you are reversing correctly and 500 shouldn't be so low based off where you came from. Yeah. And then there's also strategies where we say, Hey, like on your big workouts, if you're feeling a little bit weaker, maybe we can calorie cycle. We'll give you the same net yeah, yeah. calories for the week. Um, but on certain days, we're going to feed you a little bit more. And then other days we're going to feed you a little bit less. Like if you're doing an arm workout, you don't need that many calories to do that. But if you're doing a leg workout, a leg you're probably going to need like squats and deadlifts and things like that. You're going to need a little bit more energy. So we may uh, structure your program in that way. And that's good biofeedback where if you're telling me, Hey, my squat went down by 50 pounds. All right. Well, we need to feed you a little bit more, especially on those days. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing we touch up on is your sex drive and sex drive can tell you a lot about the hormonal environment that you're creating. Uh, again, that kind of also goes into a couple of things. So one, one thing we go into in terms of hormones is your fat intake and how much fat you're taking in. If you're doing a low fat strategy and your fat is too low for a long period of time, that can really tank your sex hormones, your testosterone, your estrogen, that can go too low. And then also calorie restriction, what we find, and I I, I actually looked this up. So what we find with calorie restriction is that fat loss in general, uh, it tends to, it frees up your testosterone. And the reason why fat loss frees up your testosterone is because Having too high of body fat is associated with uh, estrogen levels increasing, and that increases sex hormone binding globulin, which means that you have, let's say, the same amount of uh, total testosterone, but you have less free testosterone, and free testosterone is really what you're looking at in terms of that's usable testosterone that your body can use. So losing body fat initially will actually free up some of your testosterone and you'll feel better and you'll be able to more efficiently put on muscle and things of that sort. But severe calorie restriction over periods, over prolonged periods, um, that has an adverse effect on testosterone and sex hormone binding globulin. So that will actually increase your sex hormone binding globulin and it will decrease your, you'll see like testosterone levels tank. And this is oftentimes what we see with natural bodybuilders. Mm-hmm. is that uh, their testosterone levels leading up to a competition in like, let's say three or four weeks out, 
um, that will severely affect their testosterone levels for that period of time. Yeah. I guess the point that I want to make here is lab values are always important. And, and what I tell people is get your lab work done every six months to a year. And you'll, in terms of results wise, weight is not the only thing that you want to look at. You want to see how your body feels. You want to see how your body's performance is. You want to see if your sleep is okay. Your mood is okay. Your hunger is in check. Your energy, your cravings, your digestion, your exercise performance should still be on point. Even if you're in a calorie deficit, um, your exercise performance should be really on point if you're in a calorie surplus. Uh, and then just making sure that your sex drive is in check and, and that will kind of cue you into your testosterone levels as well. And all of these things without having to check your levels of certain mm -hmm. hormones or biomarkers, it's just really giving you some subjective feedback to look at along the way while you're on your fitness and nutrition journey. Yes. And with that being said, if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week.